They have forgotten God. Fornication and adultery. The sickness that was not visible like smallpox, but no less dangerous and contagious, a sickness of the mind. You see, Ralph was a homosexual. Graduated from conversion therapy, my mom was ready to start dating men. Of course, she found herself living in an apartment with a straight woman that she was very attracted to. Her name was Kathy, and her and my mother would occasionally become romantic. But Kathy was promised to a missionary, so they would only ever be friends. It was a friend of Kathy's that would introduce my mom to Neil, my father. of Sandra Marie, Episode 4, Mr. Smiles. I met this one gentleman, and we dated quite a bit, and because the church told me to let him fondle me, I let him fondle me and stuff like that, and he proposed, and I was going to marry him, but then... We were setting the date and everything, and he made a pass at, at Kathy. And so, and she told me about it immediately, and she he came over, and I wasn't home yet from work, and while he was waiting, he made a pass at her, and she told him to get out and go away, and then she told me. And so I called him up and said, I'm not going to marry somebody I can't trust. <laughs> and so, so anyway, and then she was working at the LDS hospital, and she worked with this other nurse. And this other nurse knew Neil, and thought he was a wonderful guy and a return missionary. And she knew me, and she said, well, do you think that he could uh, would go out with her on a blind date if we arranged it? Or if she would go out with him if he called her and asked. And so she came home and asked me, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll go out with him. And uh, he said yes, too. And so she gave him my phone number, and it took him like a month because he was so shy. It took him a month to call me, to even ask me out. And so when he called and asked me out, I said yes. And and, uh, we had a really nice first date. And we started dating and seeing each other almost every day. He would come over and we'd go out to dinner. He'd just come and the three of us, uh, Kathy and me and him, would play board games. or we, We just had a really good, nice time. And he was very, very shy very shy. In fact, I I teased him later in life because he, we were doing this for like four or five months and he still hadn't kissed me goodnight. And this is a funny story. One night we were saying goodbye and we walked out of the apartment and I walked him to his car or something and he forgot something. And so I ran back into the apartment and because I was running back in, she was going, oh, did he kiss you? Did he kiss you? Well, he was right behind me. And I said, no, shh, no, yes, shh, be quiet. And I went and got his book or whatever he had forgotten, and here he was standing at the door, and he heard all this. And so when we got out, he goes, well, maybe I should kiss you, you know? And so I said, oh, no, that's all right. You don't need to. I was so embarrassed. But that was our first kiss. He kissed me after that kind of a thing, but I don't know how long it would have been before he kissed me because <laughs> he was so shy. But uh, we dated 
oh, probably three, four, five, six months. And another story is he, he didn't like chicken. He was a beef man. He loved beef. And I made fried chicken. And he went home. He came and he ate it. He never told me he didn't like it. He loved it. He went home and he told his mother that uh, he doesn't like her fried chicken, but he sure loved mine. You know, so you could tell he was smitten because he really didn't like chicken. <laughs> and so one day he uh, said, okay, I'll, we'll go to a movie or something. We'll see you in a couple of days. And uh, we made a date to go to a movie. And the date came and he never showed up. And I was wondering if he was sick or something, but he never called. And three or four more days went by, he never called. And this is after seeing him every day for months. And so I decided to call him and he wouldn't answer. And so Kathy and I decided to go to where he worked. And there was, they, he worked at a canvas place. He was their accountant. And so there was door uh, windows, big windows in front of the canvas store. And as we were walking to get to the door, we saw him duck behind a curtain. And we walked in and another lady come out of the curtain and, and she worked in the back, but she came up to, to greet me. And I said, is Neil here? And she said, oh no, he didn't come to work today. And so I said, okay, thank you very much. And so I realized, I, I figured, okay, he doesn't like me and he's dumping me and he doesn't have the courage to dump me in person or on the phone, so I'm done. And I didn't see him for another year, over a year. About a year to a year and a half later, I had moved out of that apartment because Kathy's missionary came home and they got married. And they were living in the apartment because she had the good job and he wanted to go to school. And so they still had the same phone number because they just kind of, he just kind of moved in and I moved out. And so I was living somewhere else and Neil called that number and I was actually, I loved theater. I went to theater in college was my major and I was directing a young adult play at a steakhouse across town. And um, he called and said, you know, I'd like to get hold of Sandy. Could you give me her number? She says, no, I can't give you her number, but I know where she is right now. It's the opening night of this young adult play, and here's the address. If you want to go to that play, you could probably see her. And so he came to the play. And... Um, I saw him in the audience because after the play, you know, they give the directors flowers and all that fun stuff. And here I'm accepting flowers, look down, and I see him in the audience. And I think, oh my gosh, that guy's in the audience. But he comes back after and asks me out. He said, I'd really like to uh, go out with you if you'd, let's go out for ice cream or something. So I said, okay. I probably normally wouldn't have, but the church was encouraging me to date and to find a return missionary. And so I said, okay. It was on a Thursday, I remember that. And the next Thursday, we went out and had ice cream. And in the middle of having ice cream, he goes, well, I want to apologize for just dumping you like that, but I was falling in love with you, and I was scared, and I wanted to run away, and, and I just couldn't handle it right now. But I can handle it now, so I was wondering if we could get married. And I looked at him, and I thought, 
well, this is really interesting proposal. You know, it's like we haven't even been dating for over a year and you're asking me to marry you. It's like, oh my gosh. And I said, well, I'm going to have to think about this. And so I was living in a sugar house, Utah, and it was a, a house that had four girls in the basement and four girls upstairs, and they're all college girls. And so I went home and I prayed for two days. I just fasted and prayed and fasted and prayed, except for when I had to go to work and was just struggling because I had already decided I was going to go on an LDS mission. And I was taking the LDS mission training courses. They have a little class about it. and was just waiting for the bishop to call me for an LDS mission. But that's what I was preparing for to do. And... I was praying and pleading with God and asking him, asking God, what should I do? And I heard a voice in my head say, you have another mission to fulfill. And that was my answer, that I should marry this man. And because he was a return missionary, he seemed like a nice guy, and I just did it because the church. I actually had another boyfriend, sort of like a boyfriend, in Idaho Falls at the time, and he asked me to live with him. And I said, no, I can't live with you. I'm go- I've, got- I've got to marry a man that can take me to the temple. And so I sort of had broke up with him. Almost immediately after that, Neil came to the play. And so then this other gentleman was Ben, and Ben was just heartbroken, and he actually drove, up, drove from Idaho Falls down and came to my apartment and begged me not to marry this man. To, he says, I'm sorry I asked you to marry me. I'm sorry I asked you to live with me. And I said, I can't. You don't want, you're not, you don't want to be LDS. You don't want, you don't believe it. You're not a return missionary. And so I told him I couldn't. And so then I told Neil that I would marry him. And then three months later, we were married. Sometimes I I think back about it and think, why did I ever marry this guy? And I know why. The church and the bishop were all encouraging me to marry him because I needed to have sex with a man, I needed to not be homosexual, and I needed, I needed it to be a temple wedding. So it was very tumultuous to to say the least. We fought like cats and dogs. In fact, my co-workers, when I go to work on Monday, say, well, are you engaged or is it off? Because one week it would be off, oh, I'm not going to marry him, and the next week we'd be back together. And it was like he he didn't like any of my friends, and so we'd argue a lot about my friends. And my friends were my co-workers, and we hardly did anything, but he'd find some kind of problem or they he didn't like about them. And We'd argue about how I dressed. If I suggested anything to him he didn't like, we'd fight. And it was like, I look back at it, and I know he was starting the controlling. Even before I married him, he was trying to control me. And I just kept saying, I need to marry him. I need to marry him. I know it'll work out. I got this answer from God. I got I to gotta do this. When you morally sin, so to speak, and being homosexual is definitely a morally sin, 
you have to repent, you have to go talk to the bishop, and sometimes if it's too severe, especially with men, they'll excommunicate you or put you on probation. But with me, because I'd gone through the training and I was not in a lesbian relationship and I hadn't been for several years now and, and everything, all I had to really do is tell Neil about my life and that I had gone through this and make sure that he's okay with it because I can't not tell him. And so I told him, and that was a big breakup. He said, oh, I don't think I want to live with that. And so he went home, and it was a week or two before I called again. And uh, he decided that it was okay. And in my mind, I think he decided he could control me with that information. And he did. With that information, even though from the time I married him to the time of the divorce, I was a faithful wife. And he would use the lesbian word on me several times, which I'll get into later. But I was always afraid, and, and he always picked the weakest part of something, of a person, to attack them on. And that was my weakest part, because I didn't want anybody to know I was a lesbian. I, I had hid all this my whole life from my parents, everybody. I went through all this therapy without anybody knowing, and he was going to broadcast it to the world, you know. So he used it against me a lot. But he married me. And I feel sad when I think about him. And I'm going to tell you that I think he was not a nice person. But I think part of the reason he wasn't nice was because he was this poor, shy, pitiful kind of guy that had a low self-esteem. And because the church made me marry someone, and it happens to be him, he never had a wife that loved him. I loved him as a human being and a father of my children and stuff, but I never was in love with him. And I think that was sad for him. And I, I, I blame the church for that because I really believe that the church forces gay people to get married, either male or female. They get married, and that's setting the marriage up for failure right off the bat. You can see it over and over again. With men, when they hit their 40s, they're out of there. And that happened, happened to me too. And with me, if Neil would have been a kind man, I believed in the church so much at that point in my life, I probably would have stayed with him. We would have probably had a happy life if he had been kind. But he wasn't. And I did not divorce him because I was a lesbian. I divorced him because he was mean. But nobody would know that. (laughs) (laughs) So, Sandra married my father. And as you might have picked up from their dating and proposal story, Neil was a very insecure, passive-aggressive, conflicted man. He was a man of many faces. Those who knew him most intimately could easily compare him to a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type character, with a strong duality. The same complexities that perhaps most humans embody, a private life and a public one, a mask or a face that we put on to greet the outside world. Only Neil's was amplified. There is no doubt that a screw was missing. I've often wondered if it was a hormonal imbalance, a problem with his adrenal gland or something. 
but behind his mask was something downright sinister and even evil. He got pleasure from hurting people. When his adrenaline was up, he wanted it to stay up. To most of his business colleagues, people at the church or even his friends, he was such an enthusiastic, charming, and nice guy. But behind closed doors, at home, though there were many tender moments, periodically, he was nothing short of a monster. It's because of this that we began to call him Mr. Smiles. There were countless times when something would misfire in his brain. His breathing would change. The veins in his forehead would swell. His eyes would become bloodshot. He'd start to sweat profusely. He'd begin pacing and searching for someone to share his rage with. My mother would try to direct his rage toward her to protect us kids from it, but usually to no avail. He wanted to find the thing that would hurt his victim the most. And so us kids became ammunition to be used against her. We were invited into the fights. We were between the objects being thrown, spitting, kicking, screaming. We were all innocent pawns in his psychotic schemes. And then the phone would ring or someone would chime the doorbell. And with a snap of a finger, his demeanor would immediately change. Oh, hey, Brother Christensen. How the heck are ya? Yeah, we're doing great. And that was the beginning. I was going to say that's the beginning of 17 and a half years of hell. But actually, it was only 15 and a half years of hell. Because the first two years of our marriage weren't that bad. We had some fights, mostly over my friends. I had to give up all my friends and only have his friends. He was trying to seclude me and keep me separated from any of my support system. And then he started in on my family. He didn't like my mother. My mother had never done anything to him, but he hated her. And he started, you know, trying to make that relationship fall away. Then he starts in on my sisters. He didn't like them. And this is all hindsight, but at the time, I was just trying to make my husband happy. And so we'd argue about it, fight about it, but he'd always get his way. I would stop associating with whatever happened. And it wasn't, it was very subtle. It wasn't real, real super aggressive, just very, very subtle. And until I finally did get pregnant, I had a hard time getting pregnant. And so I didn't have, I didn't have kids until 1980. And I ended up having twins. Until the twins were born, the abuse didn't really, really start. It was just slowly getting the control. But after I had kids, he had me. You know, if you don't do what I want, I'll tell everybody I'm a les- you're a lesbian, I'll get the kids. And so I just succumbed. Plus, another thing about the church is in a temple ceremony, you commit and promise that you will be submissive unto your husband. Well, if a man's going to be abusive, that gives him free reign, because he took that very seriously. You are submissive. You are under my thumb. You are my property. 
And I truly believe that's what he and many, many, many Mormon men believe, is that their wives and their children are not really human. They're property. They're like cattle. And this, this religion makes that okay. Now, I'm not saying all Mormon men are like that. I know a lot of Mormon men, they're absolutely wonderful. And they're kind to their wives. And it's more of a partnership than a dictatorship. But if a man has abusive tendencies, the Mormon church is a wonderful place to be. One day, Neil and I were in the car and he had just bought this brand new car. And uh, it was we had a huge fight and the kids were in the back and he started hitting me. Uh, how you, it's a small, not too very big car and he could just reach over and hit me with his right hand while he's driving. And it hit me. I hit him back. It hit me. And um, this went on for quite a while until I started hurting, you know, and I think this is terrible. So he came to a stop sign and I was so mad at that point that I got out and I turned around and I kicked a dent in his brand new car. Well, he pulled over completely, got out of the car, he was going to kill me. He was livid. And so he came after me and I kept running around and this other woman, two cars back, was watching all this. And she opens up her car door and says, "Lady." Are you in trouble? Come get in my car. I can see you're in trouble. And so I did. I went and jumped in a car of a total stranger so that he couldn't beat me up. And uh, she said, well, where where do you want to go that you're safe? I said, I'm not sure where I can go where I'm safe. And we talked about it for a while. And I said, you know what? I could go to my next door neighbor that lives across the street from me. I'd be safe there. So she took me to basically my house. But I went into my friend's house. And they were... She was a wonderful friend, and of course, he was in the bishopric. And, but they were really good, and our kids were friends. And I told her what happened, and she goes, you just stay here. And about an hour later, Neil drove home. I could see him pull into the driveway with the kids, and he went in. And I decided to call him, hoping that he was calmed down. And I called him, and I said, I'm across the street, and I'm not sure if it's safe for me to come home or not. And he says, it's safe, I'm calmed down, I'm not going to hurt you. you know. But that was another bad fight that just made me not want to be around him. Because he started hitting me over something really stupid. I, I don't even remember what it was, but that was the first time he hit me. Before the twins were born and after the twins were born, uh, Neil was still going to college. He was going in accounting, and he also had a full-time job. And I had a full-time job, but because I had twins and I had had so many miscarriages and stuff before that happened, the doctor put me to bed. So I had to take a leave of absence from my work, and at four months, I pretty much stayed at home. And so Neil was gone a lot. He had his full-time job, and then he went to school at night. So there wasn't a whole lot of time for him to be angry at me, you know. But then after the twins were born, he was a good dad at the beginning. He loved his children. He would come home many, many nights, and I was losing it. I never, ever 
took home ec. I didn't really want to have kids when I was younger. I didn't ever babysit children. You know, like young teenage girls would go babysit. I never wanted to do any of that. And so having two babies at once, and my mother living in Idaho, and my husband gone all day and night, and I have these two babies crying and trying to feed them. It was just so overwhelming, and they could feel my stress. And so he would come home more than once with all three of us crying, the two baby, and I'm holding one baby on each in each arm on the hips, and I'm bouncing up and down trying to make him cry, and I'm crying, and he'd come in, and ah, you know, and he'd grab one baby, and in two seconds they were calm because he was calm, and then that would make me cry more, and he'd take the other baby and he'd calm them down, and I'd say, oh, I'm a horrible mother, look at this, I can't, you know, I was losing it, and he was pretty nice and compassionate about that. He liked taking care of those babies. And that's one thing he wanted. He wanted 12 kids. He always said he wanted a huge family, he wanted kids. And so after the first year, that all bellowed out. Then I finally got control of how to handle two kids. And um, there was more control, but also I was taking care of two kids. I, he didn't really have to control me much because I was busy. <laughs> You know, and I was busy doing what he wanted me to do. But then when I got pregnant with my second child. With me. With you. Mm -hmm. At the same time, he was having problems with work. He had a job and he got laid off and he became very angry and he was not nice to me. I had gained a lot of weight when I was pregnant with the twins because the doctor didn't stress weight because he told me, you can't tell a woman not to eat when her appetite is increased and you put her to bed so she has no exercise, she's going to gain weight. And I gained about 80 pounds when I was pregnant with the twins. And the first day I lost 30 and then I probably lost another 20 or so, but I didn't get back to my normal weight before I got pregnant with you. And he always hated me being fat. And, uh, would get after me on that and just be verbally abusive about my fat. So we were fighting more. And he was unhappy because he didn't have a job and he was out looking for a job. And it was very, very, very stressful. And at the same time, California comes back into my life. I was receiving letters. He was being really, really horrible. And I was pregnant, so it was a train wreck. I start getting letters from California saying that she's going to be divorcing and she's decided that she is truly gay and she can't live this way. And she would like to see if we could be together. And they were very loving letters. When I went to visit my parents, and. I went to visit my parents mostly to go see, see California. And um, he was snooping through my drawers. I, I, we had a big, huge captain's waterbed, and I both had drawers. And, and I wasn't being very smart about this. I should have thrown the letters away or something. But uh, he found the letters. He read them. He flipped out. He called my parents. And, I, and when he called my parents, I was at California's house. And when I came back, my parents said, boy, Neil's really upset. You better call him. And so I called him and I said, I'm coming home. And this was like 
11 o'clock at night, and it's a four-hour, maybe four and a half hours then because the freeway wasn't complete, to come home. And my parents said, you just need to, you've got two babies. You stay until tomorrow morning. And I said, no, I've got to go home now. And so I packed up the kids and went home. And he was livid. And he said, I can't believe you cheated on me. I said, I don't believe I cheated on you. I'm sorry, I just don't believe it. In fact, I'm clear now that I want to live with you. I'm over her. I want to have this family. And uh, he called the bishop, and we went in and talked to the bishop. And at the time, he talked to me separate. He talked to us together, and he talked to, to Neil separate. And he told Neil that this would probably be a lifelong thing, and he needed to keep, keep an eye on me, make sure I didn't get any close female friends. He didn't tell me he told him that. But anyway, I repented, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so you could sort of say I wasn't faithful to him, but I, I feel like I was still faithful to him. I feel like it was clarity to me that I was trying to do what they wanted me to do. I loved my children. So I stayed with him. And then, I know, three or four months later, maybe, maybe longer than that, I had you. Next time on the story of Sandra Marie. Despite the horrific treatment my mom received, she has yet another child with my father. And I try to understand her motivation for this. We talk about what goes on in the mind of an abused woman. Why wouldn't she leave him, or at least not have any more kids with him? Stay tuned. Stay tuned.